1: Hi, handsome. Come to join the party.
0: Hey, party people. Welcome to the Petrama Party, where our favorite Pictionary category is crippling childhood memories. So grab your sleeping bag and the vodka from your mom's liquor cabinet and let's get into it. My name is Remy Ramirez, and this week we're talking about shame, and I'll start by telling y'all what my therapist has explained to me several times. Guilt is feeling bad about what you've done. Shame is feeling bad about who you are. So whereas guilt can be used as a kind of indicator to give you insight into moments when your actions maybe weren't in alignment with your core values in some way, Shame basically just tells you you're a bad person or you're a stupid person, you're an embarrassing person, you're an annoying person, whatever it is. And so it's really dangerous because the underlying follow-up to that belief is, and there's nothing you can do to change it. To help us navigate this tricky AF topic, I'm so happy to welcome associate therapist Eliza Davis to the pod. Hi,
1: Eliza. Hi, Remy. (laughs) How are you doing? I am good. Thank you. How are you? I'm so excited to be here. Oh my God. Well, it's my
0: pleasure to have you on. And to get things started, tell us, what is your sign?
1: I am an A. Wow. I am a Aquarius. Uh, It is kind of hard to say
0: an Aquarius. It is a little hard to get that out. Yes. (laughs) An Aquarius. Okay. So this is so interesting. I'm finding that a lot of therapists who come on either are Aquarians or they have prominent Aquarius placements in their chart. Do you feel like an Aquarius? Do you relate to the traits and characteristics of Aquarius?
1: So I don't know all of the traits and characteristics of being an Aquarius, but I do, or what I have heard is that Aquarius is like structure. They like being organized. We like creating lists and all of that speaks to me and (laughs) who I am. Okay. So this is so interesting.
0: I'm going to go on my little astrology soapbox for a minute. Did I tell you that I'm also an astrologer?
1: <laughs> no, I didn't know that.
0: Yeah, so maybe maybe should have mentioned that. So, it's interesting because what you're describing is what pe- people typically how people people typically talk about Capricorn, right? Like they love lists, they love structure, but what's so interesting is that originally Saturn, who is the planetary ruler of Capricorn, Saturn's very like into structure, into discipline, into routine. Saturn was also the ruler of Aquarius. And so now like kind of people think of Uranus as a planetary ruler of Aquarius, but I think of Aquarius as having like two parents, like, like Saturn and Uranus have joint custody of Aquarius sort of, (laughs) but so it's so interesting because a lot of people think of Aquarius as like, they're progressive. They're like, kind of out there they're visionaries you know like maybe a little steve jobsy but like what you're talking about is actually very much a part of aquarius it's this like saturn informed part of aquarius um and also the thing that i the the re, the theory i have about why so many therapists who come on have Aquarius in their charts is because Aquarius is very analytical and I feel like that's a big part of being a therapist. It's kind, of, um, kind of getting to the bottom of why someone is the way
1: they are. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Okay,
0: cool. Well, okay. I'm, I'm going to dive in on my experience with shame. Feel free to interject at any point with thoughts, concerns, songs. Songs are good. Or also feel free to just, you know, like give yourself a foot massage or whatever. And at the end, I'll turn things over to you with some questions. How does that sound? Sounds perfect. Okay, great. I want to start by saying that for a long time, when I thought about shame, I thought it was something that would be experienced overtly. I don't know if that makes sense, but meaning I thought that if you felt shame come on, you would know that it was shame. You'd be like, oh, wow, I feel ashamed of myself. But that wasn't my experience. It took me many, many years to figure out that shame was what was behind so much of my personal suffering. So I want to start there and say that shame can be very sly, very insidious. It doesn't wear a sign always that says, hi, I'm shame. <laughs> you know, like when you're sad, I think a lot of times you know because you cry, or when you're pissed, like generally speaking, you know, you're pissed, but shame for me anyway, is a different beast. So I, I want to put that out there in case people are like, I've never experienced shame. Like maybe, you know, maybe that's true. And that's awesome. If that's the case, but it also might not be. And since that's been my relationship to shame, I'll start forward and work my way backwards chronologically to kind of illustrate this point. So. When I was in my late twenties, I was living in San Francisco and I was having a really hard time, not on the surface. On the surface, I was doing fine. I just graduated with my master's in creative writing. I decided to go to fashion school after that. And so I was living in the city in San Francisco, putting myself through fashion school, working in a cute little restaurant in the mission, living in a cute little Italian apartment with two awesome women. I was doing everything right but I was a complete mess. It was like I was in a perpetual state of grief. I just felt heartbroken all the time. And I would cry a lot. And part of that ongoing grief was because I was really struggling in my relationships with men. The year before I had started going to love and sex addicts, anonymous meetings, not for sex addiction, and actually not because I was doing what a lot of like, quote unquote, love addicts do, which is sort of jump from one codependent relationship to the next. But because there was this guy who I'd been, I should say this was I had experienced this dynamic before, but in this moment, there was this one specific guy who I'd been hooking up with for almost 10 years at that point, who just fucking treated me like dog shit and who I could not stop hooking up with. And not even because the sex was good, because let me tell you, it wasn't. (laughs) And every time we would hook up, I would feel fucking terrible. And I wouldn't hear from him for like a month or like one time we went to a party together and he flirted with another girl in front of me the entire time. And then every time after we would hook up, I would feel used and unseen and rejected and just awful. And I would always tell myself that was the last time. And then he'd text me after a few weeks or I'd run into him at a party and I'd go home with him again. And I felt so gross. I felt so fucked up. Like there was something really wrong with me, but what was interesting about it was that if I took a microscope to the like molecular level of the emotion, sure. Yeah. I felt shitty that I kept hooking up with him. for sure. That was a part of it, but the real thing I felt shitty about Was that no matter what I did, no matter how good I looked, no matter how talented I was, no matter what obscure indie band I discovered or whatever, no matter how successful or cool or smart, I could not make this guy be interested in me beyond sex. I could not make him care about me. And that was the thing that really fucked me up. And on top of it, it was such a terrible pain in my heart. Like I watched my girlfriends around me hook up with guys and it was all very easy, come easy go. And yeah, sometimes they got pissed off if things didn't work out with a guy the way they wanted, but then it was on to the next pretty quick. But for me, when I felt wounded about something and really this covered a lot of ground, uh, all kinds of things, I would shut myself off from the world and have an absolute emotional collapse that no one would know about. And so like another really good example of that was that for a while, I was working at this restaurant with a really mean boss who would yell at me all the time, but he yelled at the other, the other girls who worked there too. And they would just kind of roll their eyes at him. I would sob, sob for 20 minutes in my car before I went into work. And then for another hour, when I got off, everything hurt me and hurt me deeply. Whereas it seems like the people around me could just navigate the world without being so sensitive to everything. And one night I was in my room sobbing and I wrote in my journal over and over again, you made me wrong, you made me wrong, you made me wrong. And I was writing that to God, essentially saying there's something deeply wrong with me, a serious flaw that other people don't have. And there's nothing that can be done. It's just how you made me. And when I think about that moment now, It's so obvious that that was shame, but at the time I really, I, I didn't know that what I had created in my mind was a belief that I was too much. I was too sensitive. I had too many emotions. I was too intense. That's what my family had told me kind of my whole life. And of course I didn't know at the time that addiction, narcissism and avoidant attachment were such defining factors in my family's mental health. And so I didn't realize that, yeah, of course, that's what people with narcissism and avoidant attachment would say to someone expressing vulnerability. And even though I'd done a pretty good job of hiding that intense sensitivity from most people, I believed that men could smell it on me. And that anytime a guy I was interested in wasn't interested in me, that was why. They could sense that I was, quote unquote, overly sensitive and emotional, something that had resulted in me being rejected by my family over and over. And so I thought also the thing that would lead me to being rejected by men. I was sensitive. Therefore, I was unwanted and worthless, and therefore I would be alone forever. And there was nothing I could do about it. So let's back up a little and look at how I got there in the first place. I was shamed by both my parents in different ways. And I'll preface this by saying that both my parents struggle with mental health issues and my dad also struggles with addiction. And I think it's important to name that. And at the same time, it doesn't really in any way mitigate the impact of the abuse. And so, of course, as a child, I wasn't like, oh, I'm just going to not take this personally. lol. No, it was very personal and very painful. I've talked about this before on the pod, but with my dad, there was just a general, uh, I mean, I guess you could say just like a lack of love. If we think of love as a verb and not a noun, because I, you know, like I don't know how, what he was feeling or experiencing as a father, but the verb of love, the actions that show love were not present. And there was instead a lot of ignoring, even when I would like go out of my way to please him, which I did all the time. And there was also a lot of raging and criticizing. So I would respond to to all of that by trying to be affectionate and to people, please. And that resulted in more of the same from him. In fact, I think it actually made him even more disdainful of me when I would try. So the takeaway for me was my love isn't good and isn't wanted. And I am not good and not wanted. With my mom, it looked really different. My mom had huge emotions and it was very important that we always be aware of her emotions and navigate her emotions in exactly the right way. But we were not allowed to have emotional needs. So when I would cry as a little girl, sometimes she was soothing and I want to say that, but sometimes she would treat that like I was in trouble for crying. She would say, I don't have to put up with this. Go to your room if you want to cry. And that energy continued as I got older. I'll share an experience. That's a good example of that. But this one experience was one of, of many. When I was 14, I was raped by my neighbor, but I didn't know. I, I didn't know it was rape. And so I wasn't using that language, but I did tell my mom what happened. My mom didn't ever ask me how I was doing after that. And I, definitely was not put into therapy or anything. And so I, I fell into a depression of course. And a few months later I wrote a poem about it and I showed it to my mom and my mom read it in front of me, handed it back to me and said, aren't you over this yet? And that was it. So of course that was very shaming. Cause it was like, Oh, uh, I had this traumatic experience and I'm like having really intense emotions about it, but, but I'm, I should be ashamed of that. I'm not over it yet. I can't just get over things. So I'm the problem. My sister was a bit a part of this equation too. She's two years older. And when we were kids, I think her way of surviving our family was to become emotionally withdrawn, emotionally avoidant, affection and emotions made her super uncomfortable. And so she would put me down for being quote unquote, too emotional, too sensitive about things. So really from every end in my family, I was being shamed in these different ways for just being a normal human and having normal human emotions that for different reasons made everyone in my family uncomfortable or hostile. And what's so interesting to me about that now is that as a result of that ongoing abuse, I'd become extremely sensitive. Everything hurt and I didn't know why. And because emotional abuse, mental abuse, narcissistic abuse looks so different from, for example, physical abuse, it's easy not to even know that you're being abused because it's so subtle. It's easy to think that you're the problem, that there's something really wrong with you. And that belief becomes shame. And by the way, that same belief can totally happen with physical abuse, thinking that you're the problem. So I don't in any way want to downplay that. So for me, fast forward to that apartment in San Francisco, instead of journaling about the abuse that I'd experienced in my family for years, for example, I was journaling about how inherently fucked up I was, that I was literally created wrong. I was defective before I'd even left the womb. And that was why I hadn't ever been able to get the love that I wanted. And it was why I never would get that love. So that's where I was in that moment. So what has been helpful for me in healing my own shame? I think I've had a ton of healing in that department just in the last few years. But the first thing that was helpful was learning about narcissistic abuse, learning about avoidant attachment style, learning about addiction, understanding how those work was so helpful for me personally in sorting through these painful moments in my life and understanding when I was actually being abused. Because in those moments, I didn't know that. I thought I truly was a problem. And when I started sort of um, sorting, doing this, it's what my Al-Anon sponsor used to call um, sorting seeds. Like imagine you have a huge pile of all different kinds of seeds and you just can't make any sense of it. And you start putting, you know, the sesame seed with the sesame seeds and the sunflower seeds with the sunflower seed. And you start kind of putting things in their correct piles. So it's not just one big mess. That's what I started doing. And from there, it became a process of learning to advocate for myself in ways that my family couldn't and didn't. There was no one in my family to say, hey, those big feelings make a lot of sense And they deserve to be heard and valued and trusted because they have really important information to tell you. So I started seeing a therapist who could say that to me so that eventually I could start being that voice for myself. Because what had happened was the voices I'd grown up with of my family that said, aren't you over this yet? God, you're so emotional. You're so over the top. All of that, those had become my voices And yeah, over time, I started realizing, wait, actually, I wasn't crazy in that situation. I wasn't being selfish in this other situation. I wasn't stupid in this situation. And as I started making those realizations, I started to regain trust in myself and in my experience. And a lot of my self-doubt started to fade because that was a huge part of the abuse and the gaslighting was that I started to think I can't trust myself. I can't believe my own experience because everyone's telling me you should be over this by now. I have actually a great story about that. A few years ago, after that San Francisco journal moment, I was back living in LA and I was at the house of a really close friend and his friend who who I thought was a huge douchebag, who I'm not even gonna say who I thought, who was a huge douchebag was over. And there were a couple other people over as well. And we were all sitting at the kitchen table and the douchebag friend started talking about Mexican women. I'll pause to say that though I'm half Mexican, I'm white passing. So people don't always know that I'm Mexican. And he was saying something like Mexican women can't keep their legs closed. And that's why they always have so many fucking children and on and on. I won't even repeat all the inane, racist, misogynistic things he was saying but I got really upset, obviously. And I just like, I was like, okay, I'm out of here. I got up and left and I was walking out to my car. And as I started walking out to my car, I started crying. You know, I didn't want this dude to see me crying, but I, as I was walking out to my car, I started crying. And my friend, my really good friend came running out after me. And instead of saying, Remy, I am so sorry that you had to hear that or something along those lines. He said, Come on, don't act like this. You know he's just stupid. Essentially giving me the underlying message that I was overreacting. And I remember that instead of looking him in the eye and being like, "Yo, if there's anyone whose behavior you need to be critiquing right now, it's not mine." Like, call me. Uh-huh. <laughs> are you agreeing with me, Eliza? Oh, completely. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, what a fucking like what are you talking about? Um Yeah. But instead of saying that I apologized, I said, I'm sorry. You know how I am. You know how I get, because that was the messaging I'd gotten for so long. You're over the top. You're too much. You overreact. And the truth is, I really believed that for years that I had something to be sorry for in that moment with my friend. And I felt ashamed because I thought, that moment at my friend's house was proof that I was overly emotional and that I couldn't control it. It wasn't until I started getting clear on the patterns of abuse I had experienced and the ways it had chipped away at my ability to trust myself and the way it had made self-doubt become so second nature to me. You know, this is the seed sorting. This is putting the seeds in their proper piles that I was able to look back at that moment and be like, what the shit how dare everyone in that situation, but me, I was the only person who was behaving in a way that made sense. So that's one example of kind of how things started to shift for me, how I started to see things differently and started being able to advocate for myself, even, even if it was just retroactively. Right. But it started happening like in the moment where I could be like, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. This isn't cool. So in other words there was a lot of looking back and realizing I had nothing to be ashamed of. And once I started getting clarity that shame started to really dissipate to the point where I realized that I'm not overly emotional but I am very emotionally attuned and that is actually fucking awesome and I should actually start a podcast about emotions and trauma and lean into this you know emotional capacity that I have that a lot of other people don't rather than berate it and shame it and try to hide it. And as I started to do that, I also became less sensitive to every tiny potential trigger, things that used to really, really hurt me. Like I was talking about kind of at the top, they still affected me. They could still upset me even, but I didn't collapse under their weight in the same way that I had before. So that's some of my story about shame. Eliza, how are you doing over there?
1: I am good. I'm absorbing all of what you're saying. So many valid points. Um, And one that really stood out to me was almost like how you found yourself overcompensating in so many ways. And I think that unfortunately has become so normalized that we blame ourselves. Oh, it must be me. I'm so sorry. Sorry versus really understanding our role and kind of connecting the dots there. Mm,
0: yes. Oh my God. I it was like, I was sorry for, it was like, I was sorry for existing. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was like, sorry, I had a feeling. I know I should never have feelings, you know? Um. Cool. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. So I would love to turn some questions over to you and hear your take on this. Mm-hmm. The first one I have is, What are some of the ways that shame is imposed on us from others, like maybe from parents or from the culture, etc.?
1: So, one thing that you said, or a lot of things you said, really stood out to me. But one about the douchebag in your story you were talking about are these generalizations that people make of how women should act. Mm -hmm. Um, And I often think of the video that Cynthia Nixon narrated in 2020. Um, titled Be a Lady, they said, because Mm -hmm. in that video, essentially, it explains all of the conflicting messages about how women um, are faced in terms of how they should um, speak, behave, dress and how we should show up and most of the lines in that poem start with don't be to this and don't be to that. Mm -hmm. And really coming from this place of shame. So when I think of um, how shame is imposed from others, it comes from these conflicting messages of how we're taught to behave and also how we're not, how we're taught to not show up in society. So then we really look for validation and approval from others to understand, okay, well, if I can't be this and I can't be that, then how should I be showing
0: up? Uh, oh my God. Yeah, that is such a good point. And it's interesting because one of the cultural narratives of this like shaming women is is women are crazy, right? Mm-hmm. Women are hysterical. And so, yeah, when I think back to that moment with my friend, these were both men, right? And, and mm-hmm. this douchebag dude was talking about women. And if I had a feeling about it, I was being, come on, don't be like that. You know, he's stu- just get over it, whatever. And I think for me, yeah, part of what came up, not just my own um, family of origin shaming around being too much or being emotional, but also yes, exactly. This cultural shaming around, oh, you, uh, women take everything personally. It's always such a big deal. They're just crazy. That kind of thing.
1: Exactly. Oof. Exactly. Um, And then I think a lot about growing up, the people that we surround ourselves with in terms of like who shame, who imposes shame on us. So one scenario that really stood out to me was growing up the idea of like a report card, um, mm-hmm. right? Because it was a scale or a way of knowing like, how am I doing? So you get your report card. You're so excited to open it at home. You bring it home um, and you bring it to your parents. Don't know what's in it, but really excited to talk about it. And parents, let me point out, play a huge role in shame. They play a huge role in helping us learn and explore our worlds around us. But they also reinforce for us or i would hope they reinforce for us that mistakes are normal um but they also can be the ones who send very conflicting and unhelpful messages so one unhelpful message or shameful message that stood out to me when thinking about shame is why did you get one b Mm. oh my god that literally
0: happened to me (laughs) yes that literally happened to me what's up with this one b that you got yeah
1: Exactly. Right. Like what's going on? Why this one thing that's less than or different than all of the others versus saying, Remy, we're so proud of you. Congrats for all of those four A's. Um, maybe next time we'll we'll do a little bit better or like it's a goal we can work towards. Right. And really what they're doing in that moment is they're erasing all of your accomplishments and only looking at this one thing that like, they want you to improve. They're saying you're not good enough and that they're not satisfied with.
0: Mm, Yeah. And then you it's, it, I love that example because it's one of those very, um, subtle moments where as a child, you certainly don't think, gosh, why are my parents like this? (laughs) (laughs) You're like, fuck, I really, uh, I really didn't, there's really something off. Like with me, I, I didn't measure up and that like, it's so interesting because these tiny moments, you know, maybe there are lots of them and maybe there aren't, but it's interesting to see how they show up in your life as an adult, you know, years down the line.
1: Absolutely.
0: Okay. Next question. What are some indicators that a person is experiencing shame?
1: Absolutely. So Something. And ironically, one of the first things that stands out to me when thinking about this question is almost like perfectionism, right? That someone's going to have super high standards for themselves, almost in fear of experiencing shame or almost like facing shame again. So maybe someone isn't doing as well as they want at work or as well as they want in terms of dating, that they're going to put their energy towards all of the other areas of their life and almost overcompensate have to be doing 110% Mm -hmm. to make up for that one bucket where there might be a little bit of room or there might be, might be a gap where they're, they're not satisfied. And being that they're not satisfied, that creates shame.
0: So, okay, wait, let me see if I understand. So like maybe someone is struggling in, um, interpersonal relationships, dating or friends or something, Mm -hmm. but, and so they put all of their energy into their career, is that kind of and, yes. and like, they have to be the top of their field. They have to be working constantly or workaholic stuff. Or is that kind of what you mean where it's like, I, I'm not so good over here, but I can't look at it. So I'm going to put everything over here and be the very best so that I don't have to deal with how I feel shamed in this bucket over here.
1: Exactly what I'm saying that, okay. that they want to avoid that shame, mm. um, so right, you do things to kind of cover it up, and that's what leads to that sense of of perfectionism.
0: Mm. Interesting, because what you're talking about is avoiding, and mm-hmm. I like that is a part of shame, right? It's like having a secret, um, and I think for me, my secret was how emotional I was. Like I would go into these, it, like I would literally close myself off from the world, and sob. And actually, when I think about it, when I think back on, you know, being in my 20s in San Francisco, this was not out of nowhere behavior. I had been doing that since high school. And, um, you know, I mentioned that I was raped when I was 14 and that my mom was like not sensitive to it. In fact, no one, no one was sensitive to it. I didn't have anyone to talk to about it. And so that that's kind of when that behavior developed for me, where I, Like in high school, I've I've talked about this on the pod before, but I was like, I was like super overachiever, like president of my class, captain of the dance team, all AP classes, you know, just like, uh, kind of what you're talking about that bucket of like, I'm going to be all in over here at school, but the bucket where I was not doing well was like actually how I felt inside. Mm -hmm. And, And so I would go home and close my door and, light a candle, turn off all the lights, listen to Tori Amos and just like sob, sob, sob. And that was my secret was that I, I couldn't tell people how I was really feeling. I couldn't tell people that I was having big emotions because wasn't I over this yet? Why was I so emotional? You know, that was the shame for me. So that's really interesting because, um, if you're looking for an indicator in your life, avoiding or having a big secret that you feel like you can't tell anyone, that could be an indicator.
1: Absolutely. And also, as you're saying, you would go in your room and like close the door and like create your own space. You're also withdrawing and isolating, right? So that almost validates and affirms a lot of those thoughts, um, leaving you feeling like I'm not enjoyable to be around or my personality maybe is too much for other people to handle, right? Because you are in that space by yourself.
0: Mm. Oh, Feeling oh, oh, Isolating, you're so, wow. I, I, I hadn't thought of, I, haven't, I hadn't thought of isolating in this equation, but yeah, totally. And, and that is part of like, um, keeping secrets behavior is isolating. And yeah, I was- super isolated. And, you know, it's so interesting years later, when I was, um, in my early twenties, I got really sick. And one of the things, what I didn't realize was that I had parasites, (laughs) which is just like, I had moved to Puerto Rico to work for a year Mm -hmm. and, um, I'd gotten parasites while I was there and I didn't know it. And I had all kinds of weird, um, physical repercussions. But one of them was I got adult onset acne out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. And I, that was like super shame town because I had, you know, another one of these cultural things, women should be attractive. Women Mm -hmm. should be sexy. And I wasn't all of a sudden, or in my mind, I wasn't all of a sudden. And I was so ashamed that again, I would isolate and I didn't want anyone to see me. I didn't want uh, anyone to know. I didn't want the people at home, my friends at home to know that I had acne, you know, it's like such a, um, yeah, it was like, it was such a shameful thing to me. And I was going into like, into high speed isolation because after that, I moved to Austin and went to grad school. And then all of a sudden I couldn't hide anymore. And my depression like super amped up. So it's, Mm -hmm. so what you're saying is, I love that you're incorporating this piece about isolation, because if you're isolating, like really, really think about whether or not shame is going on for you. Cause for me, it didn't even occur. Like I didn't have I I wasn't putting two and two together. I was just like, I don't want anyone to see me. I wasn't thinking like, wow, I'm really overwhelmed with shame right now.
1: Absolutely. And also another thing to point out is that being in a room or being in an apartment, being alone, while it felt, isolating and validating these negative thoughts, but also in a way it's safe, right? You're not mm. necessarily putting your self-esteem at risk where you're talking to someone and they're not necessarily being as conversational back to you being that like, there's nothing to internalize in that moment, right? Like being alone in that space really felt safe. So you weren't putting your self-esteem at risk at that moment. Uh... <laughs> Oh man, I
0: relate to that so hard. And you know, um, when I think about just all of the times when I've isolated and whether it was like, because I was experiencing acne because I was, um, feeling shitty about this guy after the rape, whatever it was. Yeah. It all came back to wanting to feel safe. And I think, when we talk about shame, it's really important to talk about the fact that when you are in a space of shame, you're not safe within yourself like that's that's kind of what it comes down to is you are you are your own sort of battleground because those voices like i kind like I sort of mentioned before, those abusive voices are the voices in your own head now, mm-hmm. and so when you try to be who you are, those voices come out and say, uh, 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 you're bad. You're, this is bad. You can't be you. You can't do this.
1: Absolutely. Like those critical thoughts. Absolutely. Um, take over. And also, as you're saying that, like the idea of losing your self identity comes to mind, right? Because it's that critical voice that's then telling you who you are or who you should be, that your idea of yourself, um, can't even be explored in that moment because it's all of these negative thoughts that are then being reinforced.
0: Right, yeah. Oh man, yeah, that's a lot to think about. Okay, This we've kind of talked about this, but let me go ahead and ask, what is shame-based behavior? Like if you don't realize you're experiencing shame, um, are there things that come up where you could be like, oh, right, yeah, I, I'm, this is come, I'm doing this because I'm ashamed.
1: Absolutely. So I think a few that we've already pointed out are um, seeking validation, looking for approval of others, Mm -hmm. uh, seeking permission from someone saying like, that's okay that you do that, or this is how I want you to respond to something. And also not trusting yourself, right? because it's all internalized in a way where we then create these really strict rules for ourselves Mm -hmm. of um, trying to figure out like, how should I be acting then, right? Which takes the um, pressure and power away from ourselves. Um, I also think that that plays into this internalized belief of that you you maybe like deserve the shame, I say in air quotes. Um, and that would kind of look like not taking uh, any responsibility at work and really essentially having um, these thoughts be validated in your actions and behaviors. Um, I also think about that as focusing on negatives, not being able to see any positives or any wins from from the day, only focusing on, oh, I stuttered during my presentation today, not the fact that you got through a presentation and spoke in front of a group of um, people. And Something else that I notice a lot, whether it's with friends, whether it's with clients, is basically recognizing that shame is is a belief of a behavior that doesn't align um, with your personal preferences. So when we notice that disconnect, it's almost like we get on high alert. We begin to reason with someone. We feel defensive and we start to overcompensate justifying our Belief to them, or to whoever them, whoever you're in conversation with, or whoever you're inter- interacting with, wanting to almost like cover up any flaws, right? Not mm. wanting to feel like they could see me as being weird or having a negative thought about me from having a different belief than them.
0: Oh my god, defensiveness, defensiveness is that what you're saying? So like, defensiveness yeah. is an indicator of shame. Oh my Absolutely. god. Well, and you know, what's so interesting about that is, um, because there's this like thread of narcissism in my family, narcissism is really, is, is, is a really fascinating case study in shame because, um, the narcissist it's, it's so, to me, it's such a mindfuck because the way that the narcissist presents themselves is they can do no wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. And like everyone else is the problem. And if you confront them on, um, a mistake or whatever, uh, a mishap, they become extremely defensive and will often turn it around and make you the problem that is because narcissists are often so heavily steeped in shame that they can't the idea of taking on um, accountability and in, in admitting fault is so terrifying to them. So um, yeah, I I think that's such a good one. And to like recognize if I'm getting defensive, why? <laughs> What's
1: Like, where is that coming from? Yeah,
0: why is it? Because I feel ashamed. I think that's such a good oh yeah sorry I don't mean to cut you off
1: don't worry and another question to ask yourself is like how could you sit in the discomfort of having two separate opinions from someone else um which can be really challenging
0: oh wait can you elaborate on that
1: absolutely so when you notice that defensiveness right you're overcompensating and not wanting that person to judge you and you want to have similar beliefs as them Um, but I think when we feel okay with our response or or okay with how we um, are showing up I almost wonder like can we be separate but equal do we have to be defensive over explain ourselves to make it almost equal with someone else's opinion and and really need to know why let them know why we feel a certain way or why we think a certain way.
0: Oh, so can we, is it possible for us to just be like hey, yeah, like okay, I hear what you're saying. I come from I'm coming from a different place with it and um I respect where you're coming from and and mm-hmm. I just feel differently. That's what you're saying. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Yeah,
0: totally. I get that. Um There was something, there was a piece that you had mentioned earlier that I wanted to come back to. You had mentioned something about how you're showing up at
1: work. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate on that? Absolutely. So what that would look like is, um, that this internalized belief is playing into opportunities. Let's call it, you allow yourself to be a part of. So let's say they're asked, you're asked to do a project or help out with something, you're really not going to believe for yourself that you're capable of mm-hmm. doing something. So you're going to take the role that maybe is like the easiest, the safest, or that feels the most comfortable for you, not challenging yourself to prove yourself or show to others that like, look, I can take on this responsibility, right? Because we want to keep things safe at that point in time. We don't want to uh, shock our self-esteem or risk our self-esteem getting lower. We want to stay with things that feel comfortable and safe in that moment. Uh, and also because of that internalized belief that maybe we're not good enough or I'm not smart enough, um, we don't feel like we could do it.
0: Totally. And you know, Um, one thing that I think has come up for me in that area has been like, maybe I can do it, but if I can't, and everyone sees that I can't, then I'm really fucked because then people will see, um, that I, that I'm actually not good. You know what I mean? Or like my imposter syndrome stuff comes up. Like, it's like, I wouldn't necessarily think like, I definitely can't do this. I'm definitely not good, but I would think Maybe I can, but if I can't and other people see that, Mm -hmm. I can't, I can't allow that. And I think that's part of that shame piece too. Is like, I have to be perfect all the time.
1: Absolutely. Because it's like, if other people see that I'm not perfect or that I am flawed or that I can't do something that, that's worst case scenario playing out. And and there's such doubt and even how you would be able to cope with that, right? Because I think all of this speaks to this level of self-doubt you have for yourself and your ability to um, navigate things that that maybe don't feel safe, aren't so comfortable, right? So then there is that doubt of, well, how do I handle this now moving forward that other people now have seen my shame, my flaw?
0: Right. Ooh, oh my God. Okay, let me ask you this. How does shame affect the body?
1: So when thinking about how shame affects the body, I like to think of mind-body connection here because if I tell myself that I have a five o'clock meeting that I'm really nervous and anxious for, I'm gonna start having um, some physical reactions to that, right? I might be tapping my foot. I might be fidgeting with my AirPods. I might be playing with my hair or my bracelets based off of what I'm telling myself to believe that this is going to be um, nerve wracking, that I should feel a certain way about this. So when thinking about shame, I think shame affects our minds by this idea of like the internal critic. And like we were saying before, The internal critic can almost become someone else's thoughts and beliefs about us that tell us we're not good enough or that we don't deserve to be in this space, which then creates these rigid rules that tell us how we should show up somewhere. Um, And when we go into a situation where, let's say, our shame or our self-esteem is at risk, our mind is telling us maybe like you have to be X, Y, or Z. You have to show up in a certain way and you're going to really belittle yourself. So what that's going to look like from your body is you're going to be um, tense. You're going to be closed off. Maybe your arms are crossed. You're looking down. You're talking quietly. Um, and also you're, you're slumping in your seat, right? Because you can tell that confident person in the um, at the dinner table or showing up at a party but this shows up differently in the sense that you really see the, the body kind of shutting down, um, but also internally that fight, flight and freeze response like gets going, right? Like your blood pressure is increased. Your heart rate is increased. Really, I think almost like working for, for perfectionism in that way of like wanting to follow these rules that you've told yourself about how it feels like you have to show up. mm.
0: Oh that's so yeah that's so interesting. Um it almost makes me think of when I was in high school I mentioned that I was on the dance team and I I had a big performance coming up and I I can't I didn't twist my ankle but I hurt my ankle in mm-hmm. in dance class and I was like um I this perfectionism thing, I was like, I have to do this show and mm-hmm. I have to make this work. And so I, um, forced my, I plunged my ankle into, uh, ice and it hurt so much. Cause like <laughs> having your whole foot in ice I'm sure. It, uh, how cold. Yeah, I like really didn't feel good. And it was so painful and I and I but I wouldn't take my my foot oh. out. I forced myself and it was so it was so interesting cuz like I've gotten fever blisters since I was little. And um I got two massive fever blisters from doing this. And it was sort of like my body was telling me like, hey, when you forced me to be in pain on top of already being in pain the other day, I really didn't like that. But in my mind, it was like I had to be perfect. I had to show up in this way, and I like I I couldn't miss this show. That was unthinkable. And the and the mo- the most important thing was not what what I was experiencing. Mm-hmm. I could take on all the pain in the world the most important thing was that I show up um at all the rules uh-huh. right and follow the rules and um yeah sort of portray this ideal right this this per, uh-huh. this perfection ideal of like the perfect high school student girl image, whatever it was like, the image was so much more important than my actual experience. And as a result, like I had this, um, this physical response from my body, where my body
1: was like, boo, (laughs) boo, we hate this. Absolutely. As much as you were telling your body, I, uh, yeah, you were telling your body, I have to do this, you can do this, you have no choice but to do this, you almost notice then the physical response of your body afterwards.
0: Right, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because- Um, I had never really thought about, I thought about that moment a lot, but I hadn't thought about it in relationship to shame, but like Mm -hmm. part of my shame experience has been not showing up perfectly. If I don't show up perfectly, quote unquote, whatever that looks like in my mind, then shame comes up for me. And then I go into like, as you were kind of talking about before I go into this force, forceful mode where it's like, I have to get perfect in this area of my life. So yeah, that high school one, it was like dancer GPA, you know, I had these like areas where it was like, I have to be perfect in these areas. And yeah, I hadn't thought of that as shame, but that's so true. Mm -hmm. So, okay. My last question for you, the root of shame is something like, I can't accept this thing about me. And so I know others can't accept this thing about me. What does it look like for us to heal that? Like, how do we start changing our beliefs around shame?
1: Isn't that the million dollar question? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I would like to think that the first and like one of the most important steps of making change is really becoming aware of our thoughts, Mm -hmm. Um, really becoming aware of like how our thoughts and behaviors interact with one another and then starting to recognize how are these thoughts serving you? Um, How are these thoughts playing into like motivation to do things? And also how are they holding you back from doing things? And I think this is all trying to understand um, really like when and where and in what scenarios are you shaming yourself. And when you notice it and become aware of it, you can become more deliberate in how you respond to it. Um, So something that I actually discuss a lot in session with clients is, um, kind of almost like labeling it for yourself and catching yourself and noticing, oh, here it is again—that shameful thought and belief um, coming out. Because when we're able to l- identify it, we're, we're then labeling it and kind of separating it from every other thought, with it being something that we're really holding um, value to.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so so being aware of when it of when you're feeling shame is like the first, yeah. What, what do they say in, um, 12 step programs? Like admitting you have a problem is the first step towards recovery. Exactly. Right.
1: Exact same thing here. Right. And really I think that awareness is going to be key because when we want to make change, we have to really understand like, how is it serving us? How is not it not serving us? And like, how is it holding back? Because that in a way starts to create motivation for us to think about like, what are we then working towards if we're changing our behaviors or changing our beliefs?
0: Hmm. Okay. What are we working towards?
1: Exactly.
0: Okay. Yeah. That's cool. Because then you kind of have a little path laid out towards it's not just about, cause I think I, in, especially in my twenties, I could get so like wrapped up in like, um, I'm so fucked up. Right. And so like, if you're just like, I'm just a shame ball, you know, then yeah, you can admit you have a problem, but if you're just sticking it, if you're just like, I'm just a problem, then you're just perpetuating the shame. But if you kind of have a path of like, okay, this is where we're headed. Mm-hmm. Then it feels maybe a little more like, yeah. Okay. Like I can get there. I can do this. It it doesn't feel just like in the, in the sort of stagnant space of like, I'm just, Oh yeah. I recognize I have shame because I'm a bad person. And then you're just in your shame space.
1: Totally. And I think it even plays into like the idea of maybe being stuck in a way, because we notice that like, if we're feeling stuck with, with challenging our thoughts and recognizing like what's on the other side. It often makes me think, right. Like that motivation piece of like my motivation to change my motivation to um, challenge beliefs, but also recognizing that like desire. And I think that desire, it has to be a part of motivation and and wanting to hold yourself accountable to make change.
0: Mm. Yeah. And I, I love that you bring in accountability because that is such a, Accountability is just such a an important part of any kind of self, um, self-help or like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a, any kind of metamorphosis, <laughs> you okay. know, getting into a better space, a big chunk of that is accountability. And that's really with anything, but that includes shame. You know, like I want to be in a better space and I am accountable for, um, how, like Every step of that. Am I am I am I stepping away from old patterns or and stepping towards this new path or am I not? And like if I'm not, it's not about shaming myself, it's about picking myself up and and trying again.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So some questions and um some things to ask yourself, I think, when you want to start to challenge beliefs once you notice that like motivation, that desire and that accountability is there. Um, I think one really helpful question could be like, what's the evidence for this thought, right? Like where, um, where is, what's validating this thought but also thinking about how much you believe this thought because is it something that like we've been saying is it something that someone else has said to you about yourself or is it something that you really feel you believe um for yourself um and as as talking about friends talking about siblings and dynamics i often wonder like what would you tell a friend or a sister because at the end of the day we are our own harshest critics. Um, But the advice and the support and the compassion we would give to someone else is almost like unheard of and unthinkable for ourselves. Um, And another really helpful tool could be thinking about what life would be like without sham or with less sham um, or Mm -hmm. with 1% less sham, because then you're really able to like we're saying, kind of create the path of like where you see yourself going. Um, and I talk a lot, when we talk a lot about self-esteem, I talk a lot about like this idea of neutral thoughts because things aren't going to change overnight to I had a really shitty day to I'm having the most amazing day within 24 hours. Right. Um, so <laughs> so totally. I like to think there's somewhere in between there, right? Um, And a neutral thought would look like something along the lines of some days are harder than others, or I'm doing my best today. Um, Today I'm okay. Or I'm working on myself just as I am. Mm -hmm. Um, And another part when thinking about like challenging and changing beliefs um there's always a part of it like we're saying with accountability is understanding your role and dynamics and understanding your role in things and I often think about the questions like what would you do differently next time knowing the information you have now um or that you're on the other side of things but also if you were put in a similar situation how would you handle it and what skills what coping mechanisms um what do you notice what worked, what didn't work? And, and almost wanting to challenge ourselves to see that, like, it doesn't always have to come out or the expectation doesn't always have to be negative, that we have to feel bad about ourselves.
0: Mm, The expectation doesn't always have to be negative. So yeah. In other words, kind of giving ourselves space to show up in different ways. Like we don't have, it doesn't have to be, um, This, this like projection, like I always fail or whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. chipping away at those thoughts. Yeah. You know, one thing that's come up for me a lot, and I like, I know I talked about um, my struggles with guys, Mm -hmm. the, the underlying belief, it took me a long time to figure this out. And here's another example, Um, years later, after that San Francisco thing, like maybe six years later. I was, I was like, there was a guy that I kind of liked and I, and I was trying to figure out how to send him a text. There was a girl who I worked with who dated all the time. Like I, I hardly ever dated. She dated constantly. She's always dating someone. And I thought of her as someone who was really good with men, where I saw myself as like really not good with men. And um, she was like, kind of making fun of me at work because I was so nervous about sending this text and she, and it was totally in good fun and it wasn't at all mean spirited, mm-hmm. but I got in my car and I sobbed and I couldn't understand why I was sobbing. And, and the truth is it took me a couple years. I mean, when I say I sobbed, I mean, like, <gasps> like a uh, full body sobbing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it took me years because I was like, "What is happening to me?" And and I will say there have been uh, several of those moments in my life where I've I've sobbed really hard and I didn't know why. And it and because I didn't know why, it perpetuated that belief that I had that I was too much and I was too sensitive and I was like kind of crazy or whatever. But but after doing lots of work on myself, what I realized is because I had been um, shamed around being too sensitive and being too much. And then the follow-up belief was, and there's nothing you can do to change it. And then the follow-up belief to that was, and so you'll be alone forever. This conversation with my friend at work had triggered that belief in me that you don't know what you're doing and you're, and you're not good with men. And so you're going to be alone forever. The You're going to be alone forever was, the scary triggering thought that would often cause me to have these really big emotional reactions to things because I really believed that. Mm -hmm. And so being able to kind of identify these moments and identify these thoughts and like what led up to them, like, "Oh, oh, this thing happened. And then, oh, this thing happened. And then I had this thought and then I, it triggered this massive, uh, emotional (laughs) response. Then I was able to kind of, um, like you're talking about interrupt those thoughts. And instead of projecting, like, I'm going to be alone forever go like, Oh, I'm, I am really scared of being alone because yeah, for a long time, I thought that being who I was would chase people away. Oh, right. Okay. So, um, is it true that being who I am chases people away? Well, I have this friend and this friend and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, like that, that mapping sort of mapping out those thoughts, how I, how I get to these responses, what part shame plays, what beliefs come in that are, um, beliefs that I've created, beliefs that are, were sort of borrowed from abuse I experienced and being able to parse out and, and kind of reintroduce new new thoughts. Like, oh, dating is, is, is scary for me um, because I do feel a lot of vulnerability and I'm awesome and the right person would really be into me, <laughs> you know? Just like, absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I love that. Wow. Okay. Well this, I mean, I just feel like we covered so much ground in such a short <laughs> amount of time. Yes, we did. Wow. Thank you, Eliza. So, so, so much for coming on. I can't tell you how much I, I appreciate it. I've learned so much. Um, and, and if people want to find you or connect with you in any way, how might they be able to do that?
1: They can find me at manhattanwellness.org, which is the private practice that I'm working at.
0: Okay, cool. Manhattanwellness.org. Awesome. Yes. And um, if you want to find me, I am on Insta at Remy's, R-E-M-E-E-Z. You can also shoot me an email to patramaparty at gmail.com. Let me know like, what your thoughts are about things in general, how you're doing. Also, if there are any topics you want me to talk about, I would love to, I'd love to hear what you're interested in. Um, also rate, review, subscribe anywhere you get your pods. It really does help. And um, yeah, till next time, enjoy the party, baby. Bye.